Amen. You may be seated. And I do invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians. This morning we are going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You can also find this text in an outline in the insert, um, well, in the next page of your bulletin. Uh, feel free to follow along there. We are nearing the end of our Sola series as we have been walking through the statements or the alone statements of the Protestant Reformation. And in some ways, this week and next week are summary statements. We've reached the point that it's uh, important to get the so what. Um, speaking of the necessity of Scripture, of the necessity of faith, the necessity of grace, and now the necessity or the efficiency of Christ. And during the Reformation, the debate about Christ actually had little to do with his identity. That... Um, has plagued the church, especially the early church. Who was Christ? What did he come to do? Um, instead, what you found in the Protestant Reformation was this idea of, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough for you? Or is it Christ plus? And we saw that um, in the book of Galatians, and, and we see that all throughout Scripture. And if we're honest, we see that in our own lives. Is it Christ and Christ alone? Or is it Christ plus my works, my effort, my background, my heritage, whatever you may fill in the blank? And the answer that I would argue the reformers would give, as well as the Bible itself, salvation is by Christ alone, in faith alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Nothing else is needed. This is the message given by Paul in his letter to the church in Philippi. And as we turn our attention to the text this morning, I want you to be thinking about this very topic. Is Christ enough? Different religions today, particularly those that are um, offshoots or off branches of Christianity, I'm thinking of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness in particular, they will say yes and these things also. They're very particular in their view of the Bible, plus other books, other teachings, other doctrine. This gets us close, but let me get you a little further or all the way there. And so this is a topic that's worthy of discussion today. It is prevalent in our society and in our own lives and hearts, if we're honest. And we must be careful to not add anything to salvation, for it does invalidate and cheapen the grace of God. But that being said, let's turn our attention to our text this morning to think about it positively. So I invite you to follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord for us. Philippians chapter 2, I'll start in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And he's promised it will accomplish everything he has set out for it. Let us go to him now and ask his guidance as we seek to unpack his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we humbly come to you as we approach your word. We need your help in unpacking these truths. We know our own hearts. We know what we bring to the table. And so we cling to you today. We ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to read and understand, to hear and to receive, to listen and to believe. Father, these truths change lives. They've changed our lives and continue to do so. And so we ask that we not leave here without being affected by your word. This can only be done through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This week we, in particular, are focusing our attention on Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Now, this letter, it helps to get a bit of a background, was a response. Um, Paul is in prison, and the Philippian church sent him a gift, a financial gift, to support him in his time of imprisonment. Um, it wasn't uh, the type of imprisonment as you think of today. Things weren't as nice um, for the prisoners. Um, if they did not have outside help, often their needs went unmet. And so the church is, is financially supporting Paul in his time of captivity. And one reason he writes this letter is a letter of thanks. It's a letter of thanks to the church for their love, for their faithfulness, for their commitment to him, but more importantly to God's word. But there's also another reason that this letter was written, and it's also why um, this gift was so remarkable. Much like the Thessalonican church that we've spoken of over the past year, the Philippian church was enduring intense persecution. Roman occupation being a Roman province, um, there was a strong sense of nationalism uh, in their town. And so it was very unpopular to be servants of Christ. And so they faced persecution on a daily basis, attacks again and again and again for their stance in the gospel. And yet, what are they doing? They're taking up a collection to support the very minister that saw them to this place. And so not only is Paul writing this letter as a letter of thanks, he's also writing it as a letter of encouragement to stay firm, to keep the course, to finish the race. And so we're going to see this morning that the way he does that is point to Christ. Chapter 2 of Philippians, and particularly verses 6 through 11, are called the Song of Christ. And they are the central theme of this message. And that's a good word for us this morning. 
the central theme of our lives in thankfulness and persecution and endurance should be and must be Christ. That's the message that Paul gives us this morning, and he tells us this in three ways in our text. Verses 1 through 4, we're going to see that Christ alone accomplishes Christian character. He lives it and then displays it and then calls us to live it also. Secondly, Christ alone purchases our freedom through death. We'll find that in verses 5 through 8. And then finally, Christ alone teaches us how to worship. We'll find that in our final three verses. Let's take our time walking through this text to see how it is by Christ alone that these truths are possible. And sometimes, in order to get a point across, preachers or speakers have to go into long, drawn-out explanations in order for their conclusions to make sense. I know I'm prone to it, and you'll remind me of that um, this week, and that's okay. But I want to help you today. I'm not going to do that this morning, at least not in this one paragraph. Um, Maybe the rest of the sermon. I want to tell you what this text means, verses 1 through 4. To be like Christ, you have to live like Christ. To be like Christ, you have to live like Christ. Christ displays Christian, word meaning Christ-like, character. And so if we are Christ followers, we need to model his character. And if we look anywhere else, outside of Christ and those who are Christians who are, by grace, struggling to achieve these things, then we will be disappointed and led astray. To look anywhere else other than Christ, to live like Christ, will be a failure. Paul uses a very interesting method in order to show this truth. Um, He makes it into a conditional statement. If there isn't any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he wants you to think about that. Is there? Is there encouragement, comfort, participation and affection and sympathy in Christ? Well, the answers. In case you think on that too long, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Have the mind of Christ. Yes, he does display these things. Yes, he does live out these truths. Complete his joy as a preacher and an apostle by living them out. He's pleading with the church, church. Live these truths out in your lives. Let's take a look at each of these and actually see from God's word that Christ does display them. The first, is there any encouragement in Jesus? Can we go to Jesus for encouragement? Well, I think of a prayer that Jesus offers in Matthew 11. Uh, John the Baptist's followers have come to him. They're looking for clarity. They're looking for understanding. And Jesus does what he often does. He prays a prayer out loud so they can hear him. So he's both teaching and praying. And he says these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Jesus is an extraordinary encouragement. So much so, even liberal theologians agree that the moral teaching of Jesus should be upheld and practiced. It's the only thing they agree on, but even they will say, yes, yes, live like Jesus. Now, let's not talk about who he is, but live like him. And let's be honest this morning. How many of us are weary and tired and longing for rest? Whether it's from this political season, this uh, year of um, pandemic, it's finances, it's family related, whatever it is. How many of us find ourselves at this time of year going, man, I'm tired. And then to know that, to know that's where we are and then hear this. I know you are. I'm going to give you rest. What comfort and encouragement there is in Jesus Christ. Speaking of, does he give us comfort from love? We could go to another place. When Jesus heard of the death of his friend Lazarus, he waits three days before going to the tomb. Now, some would say that's not very loving, but Jesus was very loving in that action. Why? Because in Jewish practice, three days was the minimum required to officially declare someone dead. And he's shorter than that, and you couldn't be sure. After that, it was certain. Jesus wanted everyone to know that Lazarus was dead when he got there. Once again, how is that loving? Well, follow with me. When he was in the presence of Mary and Martha and their grief and their lack of understanding of who he was, what did he do? He wept. Now, did Jesus not know what was about to happen? Was he uninformed of his own plan? Of course not. But when he was in the presence of his friends who were hurting, who were sad, who had him right in front of them and they couldn't see who he was, he weeps because he cares for them. He wept for his friends. He wept for their need of him. He came to glorify himself, but also because he loved them. And what does his actions do but glorify himself and display love to his friends around him as he hollers into that tomb, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus obeyed. Does Jesus display participation in the Spirit? Is there collaboration between Jesus and the Holy Spirit in God's Word? Well, he promises the Holy Spirit, I will send my Spirit upon you and my Spirit will reside within you. In fact, he tells the disciples, you should be grateful that I'm leaving so that the Spirit can come. Jesus had a very high view of the Holy Spirit and its need, his need for the believers. You and I need the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus Christ knew this and he knew that's why he had to go. That's why Jesus left. He left to prepare a place for us to get ready to come back and so he and the Father could send the Spirit. Yes, there is collaboration in the Spirit. Lastly, is there affection and sympathy in Jesus? I think we would be hard-pressed not to answer this in the affirmative, considering he willingly went to the cross for sinners like you and like me. Think about that. Think about the thief that hung with Jesus, the one who deserved to be there for his sin. At the time of Jesus' greatest trial, he is still compassionate to that sinner, and he forgives him, declares him righteous. Even worse, Jesus turns to the ones who put him upon that cross and says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Jesus is certainly affectionate and sympathetic 
toward his fellow brothers and sisters. And we can look at countless examples from Scripture. This is not a hard uh, statement to prove or statements. Yes, Jesus is all of these things and more. And it's right for Paul to point us to him in this manner. He pleads with Christians, be of the same mind and of the same accord. You see, for us to live like Christ, we need to live like Christ. There is no need to look anywhere else. And something you're going to hear me say again and again this morning, and I sincerely mean it. I will never be able to fill this role for you. I can't do it. Your spouse can't do it. This church can't do it. Your family member, your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, they cannot do this for you. Only Jesus can. And that's good news. Now, I'm not diminishing me or the church or your friends or neighbors or family members. I think we're important and we have a role to play for one another, but it's not this. We must look to Christ for compassion, for love, for sympathy. And any that we do show individually, we get from him. That's why it's important to recognize it comes from him. We can be sympathetic toward one another when we recognize Christ has been sympathetic toward us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Recognize how much you have been shown compassion, love, mercy, forgiveness, kindness from the Holy Spirit. And then as you've been given that, show it to others, display it to others, live it out in others. But when you do so, point them to where it belongs. Not to yourself. Look how great I am at loving you. No. Look how great Christ is at loving you as he's called me to do the same. And so the first thing we see is that Christ displays for us Christian character. But the reason Christ can display Christian character for us is what he was willing to do next. Let's look at our second section. And it's, it really is one thing to look at Christ and conclude that we should follow him. Like I said earlier, even liberal theologians say you should act like Christ. He was a pretty good guy. This is true to some extent, recognizing when I say we should follow Jesus, you're not Jesus. And so for any of the millennials in here, um, if you were like me and in high school, you all got the WWJD bracelets and um, it was fun to pass those around and collect all 30 of the different colors. Um, we're not Jesus, so sometimes asking what Jesus would do is not the appropriate response um, because we can't. <laughs> don't go yelling in the tombs. Don't go try to walk on water. None of that. Don't turn bread into fish or fish into bread or multiply it. That's how that parable went. You can't. And don't. Please don't. If it is, that's probably demonic. So like, let's stay away from that. You're not Jesus. But living like Jesus is a good thing to see. But it's another conclusion altogether to see that Christ and Christ alone purchased our freedom through death. Paul gives us a beautiful picture here of the very characteristics he just called the church to display. How do we know Christ is all of those things? Because of this. Having this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul demands we have this mind amongst ourselves. 
We must humble ourselves and recognize all that we have comes from God. If there's anything good in Christ, keep that among you. Think of others. Live for others. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Calvin states that form here denotes majesty. Christ, in his pre-incarnate state, declared and displayed the majesty of God. He radiated godliness. And yet Paul says, he did not count equality a thing to be grasped. Christ did not hold so tightly onto his godliness that he wasn't willing to give it up. Christ did not say, this is mine and you cannot have it and I will not set it aside. I'm going to hold on for dear life. No. What did he do but open his hands? I will give it up. I will lay it aside. I will lay down what is rightfully mine for my people. He knew that the plan of redemption was the only way of salvation and the only way to life. He took on the form of a servant. He endured birth in the likeness of man. He put off his majesty. He took on hunger and sickness and sorrow and shame and desertion. No one, no one else in human history has done this for you. You cannot point to anyone who has been so self-sacrificial or loving or holy as Christ. And let me say it again, in all love, I cannot be this for you. This church cannot be this for you. Your spouse cannot be this for you. Only Jesus Christ can be this for you. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus died on a cross. That was much less pretty. Than the one we have behind us. He died. So that we may live. He went to the cross. So that we can worship in front of an empty one. Any cross that has Jesus Christ on it is wrong. You see a cross with Jesus Christ on it today, it's wrong. Why? Because he's not there. He paid his price. He paid the penalty for our sin, which was death. He came off the cross. He went into the tomb and he was ascended. Brothers and sisters, I'll be honest with you this morning. I found myself praying in preparation for the sermon this week. Dear God, if you can just let me get through the sermon, I'm going home. I'm ready. I'm ready and I'm willing. If he calls me home at 12.01, then praise be to God. If he calls me home at 11.20, praise be to God. But you need to hear this. We all need to hear this this morning. I couldn't say anything more important, more meaningful, and more direct to each of you in your lives, where you are, than this right here. There is no one that has gone to a cross for you but Jesus. There is no one who is willing to humble himself. Think about how far he humbled himself. He had the 
godliness about him, that he radiated his majesty. He displayed glory. 10,000, thousand, thousand angels praised his name on a daily basis. And he set all of that aside to be birthed. A lot of you have been there. It's not a pleasant process. And then to live. You've all been there. It's not always a pleasant process. But he did it for you, O oh sinner. Jesus Christ is God. And yet he displayed through his humility what it means to love, to forgive get sin, and also to worship. He teaches us how to worship. He not only does what he does for us, but he tells us how to respond to it. We find that in these final verses. Would you look with me? What is the practical application of these truths? One, repent. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ, for it is with him and him alone that you will find salvation, that you will have rest. You will not have rest. You will not have peace. You will not be content in this world and in this life and in the life to come apart from Jesus Christ alone. So hearing this, we need to repent. And even if you're here trusting in Christ this morning, we need to repent of how we fail. We say we trust him and yet often we live like it's up to us. But what should we do as well as that? We should worship. We should be driven to worship God alone. Christ and your death upon a cross. Christ offered to pay a sacrifice so that sinners could be forgiven. And then God honored him. Paul says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. God the Father validates the actions and effort of the Son. God the Father places him above all else where he rightly belongs. God the Father places on Jesus the very glory that he laid aside to enter our world. That which was his from the beginning, he now and forevermore wears as a validation of who he is and what he has done. He was worthy of glorifying before, how much more so now? How do we respond at that name? In response to that truth, in light of what you have heard, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. We glory God. We glorify God. We worship Him. How can you respond in any way other than worship? How do you hear this and not want to praise God? God and God alone has brought salvation to his people. It cannot come from anywhere else, nor does it have to. Christ is enough. Our church services must be marked by pure worship of this God. Our daily lives should be full of rejoicing. That's not to say that it will always be easy. There will be dark days. I've attended two funerals in an eight-day span for three godly believers who were home with the Lord. There's hard days. There's hard days ahead. But even in those days, there's joy. It was remarkable to me in both of those services, for three of those people, it was a celebration. It was a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It was a celebration for where they are now. And now there is no pain, nor sickness, nor sorrow, no sadness. And one day, we will join them again. We're just waiting for our time to go. Until then, we're called to endure, to live, to love, to display these characteristics for a dying world. And I'll tell you, it's as bad as it gets. For a believer, death, it's as bad as it gets. It really is. It really is. And then we have it in eternity to be grateful, to worship, to celebrate, to glorify God for that small period of time that we had endured the trials of this earth and the difficulties and the sorrow and the sadness and the sickness. Earlier in the service, we sang together hymn number two, O Worship the King. This song is loosely based on Psalm 104. In our Bible, or at least in in mine, that psalm is titled, O Lord my God, you are very great. Get that from verse 1. Then for 35 verses, we hear how great God is. It's too long to directly quote, but I want to bring your attention just to a few small snippets of this psalm. I encourage you all to go and read it today in your your family devotion and over the lunch table. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. It hasn't. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. The young lion roars for its prey, seeking their food from God. And God gives it. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. This psalm is indeed beautiful and it should inspire us to worship. But all the acts of creation, you can look here. You can look in the three chapters of Job as God responds to him. You dress like a man, you prepare for action and I'll tell you where I've been. You can go to Genesis, you can see all of these things. And I'm not speaking lightly of God's word, but all of it pales in comparison to what Jesus did on the cross for you. It's all paled in comparison. And have you seen a sunrise? They're awesome. Have you considered how many flowers there are in this world? It's bizarre. Flowers that don't even make sense. There's animals that don't make sense. That's one of my list of questions when I get to heaven, if I'm allowed to. Why, God? Why the fire ant? I need a reason really do. All of it pales in comparison to Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did for you. May we all remember that Christ alone is enough. The church, our families, our jobs, our hobbies are important and good, but they will never be more important than Jesus. And the conflict, the trouble, the strife, the difficulty in this world is when we put them in the place that belongs to him, if we're honest. Every time, every time difficulty comes into our life is because we put something in the place that belongs to God. The reformers understood this so well that they sacrificed their lives so that people like us would have the opportunity to proclaim salvation is from Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Your brothers and sisters, I'll say it one more time for you today. That's enough. That's all you need. Let us pray.
our Lord and our God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Far too often, we try to do it on our own. We try to accomplish it on our own. We try to add things to your plan because we feel it's not adequate enough. And yet you amaze us. You amaze us with snow. You amaze us with the heat. You amaze us with the different species of animals. You amaze us with the taste of food. We could go on and on and on, Lord. Anytime we begin to think that we are enough, we simply have to stop and try to name all of the things that you've done. You are good. You are good to us. And you are enough. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I pray for each and every one here that they can claim that as their truth and their hope. Father, we ask that you share this word with us, not just hearing it, but believing it. And that can only be done through the power of the Spirit. So I ask through your Spirit that all would believe your word and come to these truths as their own. And then may we live it out and display it for this dying world. We thank you, Father. We love you. And we dedicate all of this to you now in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.